following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, what do I want to talk to you about? I've entitled to this series, God's Not Dead, Evidence for the Existence of God in an Age of Uncertainty. God's not dead, despite what the media might want to tell you and other kind of lumin- so-called luminaries in modern society would tell you. God's actually not dead, and there is evidence for God in the second book I was talking about, the world of creation, not just from his word, but in the natural world, which is why Paul says in the book of Romans, the first chapter, that since the creation, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen through the things that are made, even his divine power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, if we didn't even have the Bible, you and I, according to God's word, would be without excuse because his creation is littered with his fingerprints, the power of God. Today, I want to look at the subject of real faith because there is an idea out there that Christians simply believe in God. It's a blind faith that has no rational basis for it. And I want to address this issue this morning and over the next three weeks after this. What's happening in society? What's happening in New Zealand? You know, in 1956, a survey was undertaken, a national census was undertaken in New Zealand. And they found that 90% of the New Zealand population, I know it's hard to read, I'll explain it to you, but in 1956, we've got about 90% of New Zealand's population was Christian of one kind or another. I mean, that's unbelievable, ladies and gentlemen, 90%. Then just two decades later, in 1976, it had fallen, but there was a cohort that appeared that had not been there previously. It's our no-religion people. You can see this on the graph here. It's the dark component. We have Christian, no-religion, and then other faiths or belief systems. We have this no-religion segment here. 14% of the population in 1976 put down on their census form that they had no religion. Just a few years ago, we had another census in the year 2013. And look what happened to the no-religion segment of the New Zealand population. This massive cohort has arisen that is around 40%. And for the first time, Christianity fell below 50% of the New Zealand population. A radical transformation has taken place in our lifetime. Well, if you're about 52 years of age, you can say you've incorporated a fair chunk of that, and some of you could say just about all of that. It's a change that's kind of unparalleled in our history. What's the significance of this? Well, what it means is that about 50,000 people every year are being added to New Zealand who say they have no religion. 50,000. Over five years, that's quarter of a million. That means every five years, the population of the equivalent of the North Shore of people saying, I have no religion, is being added to the New Zealand population. Every five years, North Shore, no religion. Where is this coming from? But this phenomenon is not just here in New Zealand, Aotearoa. It is being experienced across the Western world, from places as diverse as Japan through to Israel, Australia, Canada, 
Europe, starting with Portugal, Spain, through to France, Great Britain, Ireland, Germany, Italy, are all experiencing the same type of phenomenon of this movement away or this increasing cohort of people who say they have no religion. Even in the United States of America, where on their coins they have, in God we trust. Do you realize there is a rapid, decli- a rapid decline in religiosity and a growth in what they call in their census, non-religious affiliated, non-religious affiliated. By the year 2050, a quarter of the American population, if the current trends continue, will be in that category of no religion or having no religious affiliation. A quarter. That's 100 million people by that time. 100 million people. Now, my question is, and I th- hopefully it's one that you have here, is why is this occurring? Why are we seeing increasing numbers of people abandoning faith, in particular Christianity in the Western world? I am going to present to you today the idea or the argument that in part, and this is not the sole reason, I think there's lots of reasons, but you know, I've only got 40 minutes this morning, (laughs) and and I need to pick in something that runs with my theme here. I believe it's that the claims of skeptics in particular, and the critics of Christianity, their voices are so loud and insistent and so readily picked up by popular culture that people are adopting those views based on what they are hearing. In more recent times, this has arisen from a group of people known as the New Atheists. You may have heard of them. There's a picture of them up behind me. I call them the four riders of the non-apocalypse because they don't really mean the end of God. God cannot be ended. God is the beginning and the end, the creator, the almighty. But these people have risen up, these new atheists, and they've published books that have become New York Times bestsellers. I mean, is it possible, ladies and gentlemen, to publish a book saying that God is dead and not real and for it to sell millions of copies? Yes, it is. It's feeding into something within modern society that people want to hear. What sort of things are these people saying? Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, the late Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. What are they saying? You can pick up what they're saying just by looking at the cover of their books. You don't even need to read them. Richard Dawkins has entitled his book, The God Delusion. You poor, poor deluded people here today. Sam Harris calls his book The End of Religion. Christopher Hitchens, who likes to sit on the fence and never really likes to tell it like it is or was, said, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. <laughs> I mean, come on, he's, he's, he's actually pretty clear in his statement there. I like that, ladies and gentlemen, in the sense that you know where he stands. What do these books, what are, what are the kind of ideas they are pushing forward and trying to, it's really a form of proselytization. What are they trying to get people to believe? Well, I have a kind of a pithy quote I have made. Let's put this up here, Nathaniel. Life came into existence by chance and evolved by purely natural, undirected processes. With the death of the idea of God, morality is up for negotiation and religion is at best a delusion, hindering human advancement, and at worst is the cause of many of the world's ills. This is essentially what these people are promoting globally and with ever more strident, louder voices. 
Implicit in this statement and all of these books is this one thing, in direct contradiction to that portion of Scripture I quoted from Romans, that there is in fact no, nada, nil, nothing, no way, no how, nowhere, anywhere, evidence for God in the material natural world. Therefore, belief in God is based on nothing more, ladies and gentlemen, than blind faith. It is blind faith, nothing more than that. Seems like a compelling kind of argument. You may have heard it from your colleagues. You may have seen it presented in television shows and films. And in many ways, it doesn't seem to affect us. Probably most of us have never read any of those books. We may have heard of Richard Dawkins. He's one of the loudest of the four and perhaps the best well-known. And you're probably thinking, well, Adam, I, I can still come to church. It doesn't really affect me. I can still have my devotions. I can still open my Bible. I can still love God. The real problem, though, is what's happening to everybody around us. I think we saw the statistics. But there is one cohort in New Zealand society and global society that I personally... And more, am really concerned about and to whom these ideas are affecting. In a moment, we're going to put up a quote from a man called Rice Brooks, but I just want to tell you a little bit about this gentleman. He's part of a church movement that has established some 200 churches and 300 campus ministries on six continents and in 60 countries. And one of his specialities is ministering on university campuses. And this is what he had to say to average churchgoers about this trend. He said, for the most part, the average churchgoer goes along unfazed by books like these, wherein the impact is really felt is among young people. Through these kinds of books and the proliferation of atheist blogs and YouTube channels, young people get assaulted by their peers with questions and accusations against belief in God, the Bible, and the Bible that they are not prepared for. The result of this is that the biggest, one of the biggest segments filling out the no religion are what we might call millennials. These are young people between the ages of 18 and 24 years of age. Look at these statistics in the very religious United States of America. They asked them recently, do you doubt the existence of God? In 2007, 83% said they did not. But by 2012, it was down to 68%. What's it going to be like in another five years, and another five years, and another five years? You see, the real influence of these ideas is to be found on campuses, out in the workplace. Once that person leaves the, the Christian home and the, the environment of nurturing and, and guidance in a church or a youth group, what occurs when they leave those stained glass windows and that warm, snug environment and are exposed to the hurricanes of Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett. A recent survey found that four, that, let's have this up here, young man, three out of four young people who, in, who leave high school as Christians will end up abandoning their faith. Three out of four, one survey shows, three out of four. Well, I want us to look at one of the reasons why this is. And I'm going to suggest to you, it's because these secular proselytizers have been very successful for two reasons. The first is this, they have created a myth, and a myth that many people believe is fact, and I'm going to address that this morning. The second is, 
the myth is often unchallenged. We just don't challenge it. What is this mythology then? Perhaps the biggest reason for the success of the anti-Christian brigade has been the longly pronounced and oft-repeated silliness that faith and science are implacable enemies, that they are at war with each other, that they are contrary to each other, and that a person of faith could not be a person of science or reason or intellect. It's a crazy thought, but it's one that probably your neighbors believe. It's all right for those well, not so smart Christians to believe in God, but I've got science. Reminds me of a line from Nacho Libre. Some of you may recall that, but we won't go there this morning. In The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins puts it this way when he expresses this difference of opinion. He said, more generally, one of the truly bad effects of religion is that it teaches us that it is a virtue, it is a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding. In another place, Richard Dawkins says that religion subverts and saps the intellect. Many of you weren't expecting this on a Sunday morning at church, were you? <laughs> I can see some of you like stunned mullets, like, oh my goodness, where is this going? Will there be a happy ending? Is this a fairy tale? Well, let's just wait and see how we go. I can't promise you anything, ladies and gentlemen, except I know God is not dead. Is it true that religious belief is an impediment to scientific endeavor? The problem with Richard Dawkins is that he's not a historian. Thank you. <laughs> He's not a historian. What does he know about the history of science? He knows a little bit. But I want you to rest assured that this idea is only a recent development that is not even true because it displays a breathtaking ignorance of the historical context out of which modern science was birthed and the considerable debt that modern science owes to the Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview. The leaders of the, the greatest movement that led to modern science today were all what we would call theists. Now, a theist is simply somebody who believes in God. It comes from the word theo. An atheist is a theist without God. So a theist is a person who believes in God. And invariably, all Christians. Let's look at four of them. Well, let's look at our chart first, young man. Let's look at our chart, because we're going to talk about the scientific revolution. This is where modern science came from. Modern science is hugely beneficial to us, ladies and gentlemen. I love science. I love reading about science. You know, science means that you live longer. Science means that you live in, uh, live in houses that people have never lived in before prior to the scientific revolution. We have amazing medicines. We got rid of smallpox. We have antibiotics. We have amazing surgical techniques. We can do all kinds of things we could never do before the scientific revolution. Your life is immeasurably, un almost uncalculably changed by the scientific revolution. You probably never even heard of it. It occurred in the 16th and 17th century. The 16th and 17th century. It is what made, in part, made the modern world. Here are four great characters from our scientific revolution. Francis Bacon, Galileo, Isaac Newton. Have you ever heard of Isaac Newton? He's one of the two greatest scientists who's ever lived. Thank you, sir. I see that hand. And then we have William Harvey, an amazing man in medicine. These men transformed the way we looked at the world. They are truly world-changing. But what was it that they believed that led to science? You see, as a historian, I know something, that context matters in anything. In other words, this did not grow out of a vacuum. Modern science didn't just suddenly appear via an alien or, or, or came up out of a lake. 
ladies and gentlemen, or just appeared in an envelope in the mail. It grew out of a particular set of historical beliefs in a historical group of people at a historical time. Christians. What was it about the belief system of Francis Bacon, Galileo, Isaac Newton? It was that they believed in an intelligent God whose creation was governed by discernible laws, discernible and unchangeable laws. Now, you believe this, but this, in fact, is a fairly novel idea. It's a fairly novel idea that you and I could find out how the world works. The only way you can do that is if you believe that there's an intelligent God who created it and that this God is a lawgiver, not just the moral law of the Ten Commandments, but laws of gravity, laws of chemistry, laws of electromagnetism, laws of hydrology, laws of all sorts, the second, third, at first, second, and third laws of thermodynamics. See, these men believed that if God was intelligent and made this world, the world functions because of these natural laws that keep everything together. It actually says that in Colossians, that God holds everything together, and it's these laws. And so these men said, if God's intelligent, then I can find out how this world works by discovering those laws. And when I know those laws, guess what I can do? I can make the world a better place for other human beings. It's a magnificent idea. The Christian worldview shaped by the Bible's description of God as rational, willing to be known, who had given humanity a world to explore, to take dominion over, and tend. Let's see what Isaac Newton had to say on this subject. It is an example of this. He said, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God. Amen to that. Listen to what C.S. Lewis had to say on this subject about how modern science came into existence and where it came from. He said this, he said, man became scientific, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because of a belief in a lawgiver. Where did they get this belief from, ladies and gentlemen? Was it from the God delusion written by Richard Dawkins? Was it the end of faith by Sam Harris? Was it that religion poisons everything by Christopher Hitchens? No, it was not, ladies and gentlemen. They got this from the Bible itself. They didn't get it from atheism. They, it was part of their worldview. Colossians says, all things were created through him, for him, and is, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the first part in this a magnificent story of the birth of science is that it came from Christians, and it was because of Christians' belief in an intelligent God and God being a lawgiver that we end up with modern science. But there is one other component I want to mention here, and it is this, that Christians also believe in what we call the fall of man, the sin of Adam and Eve, and that this sin didn't just corrupt the earth, but corrupted our minds and reasoning faculties. 
They believed in the idea of a fallen humankind. Since the fall affected all of our faculties, including what we would call common sense, then we should not simply accept our thoughts or arguments to be correct. We need to test our arguments and our hypotheses by experimentation and observation. Now, do you know what science is, folks? I'll give you a definition of science. Science is a systematic study of the natural world through experimentation and observation. Science is a systematic study of the material world through experimentation and observation. Now, how does this work? I want you to imagine that you've got a couple of chemicals in a test tube, one in this test tube and this test tube. And you think to yourself, if I pour these two chemicals together, I will get this kind of result. Now, the problem is your mind can be mistaken. It can, I'm just telling you now, you can be mistaken. You could be wrong. Your hypothesis conclusion could be wrong. Do you know what you have to do to find out whether the chemicals will behave in that manner? You have to carry out an experiment. It's not rocket scientist science, ladies and gentlemen. You just pour the chemicals together, and then you see if you got the result you thought you would. And if you don't get the result you thought you would, what do you do as a scientist? You revise your hypothesis and change it to suit the new evidence. Now, this is the fundamental feature that makes modern science different from ancient science that preceded it. It's the use of the experiment. Most scientists are blissfully unaware that this tool that they have that transformed everything comes from the theological belief that Bacon, Newton, Galileo, and Harvey had that we, because we have a fallen mind, have to test our thoughts through experimentation to prove whether they're correct or not. Unbe I don't know, you don't seem that excited. I, I don't know why I'm excited about it. Maybe there's something wrong with me. This is important because it led to one of the greatest developments in human history and is at the heart of what makes modern science modern science. It's experimentation. Thus, the defining feature of the scientific revolution is the idea that the universe is understandable through laws and that we can use rigorous experimentation as a direct result of the Christian worldview. This is incredible. Let me give you an example of this. This comes to us from medicine and William Harvey, who we had up here, this great man from this early period. Now, most of medicine was dominated prior to the scientific revolution for 1,300 years by a man called Galen. And Galen was a Greek who lived in the Roman world. And he wrote a book about the human body and human anatomy and how it worked. But he'd never, ever carried out an experiment now, the reason for this is because in the ancient world, when people said they did science, what they really meant was they were using their intuition, they were using logic, in some cases they were using mysticism, and sometimes it was rationalism, but it was devoid of any experimentation. So when Gallen looked at our heart and the internal organs of the body, and he wanted to explain where blood comes from, this was his conclusion. Now, bear in mind that this dominated the scientific medicine world for 1,300 years. And this is where he said blood came from. According to the Gallic system, blood is created in the liver from ingested food and flows into the right side of the heart. Some of it throws, flows to the lungs where it gives off what he called sooty vapors. 
and some flows through the invisible pores to, into the left side of the heart where it gains vital spirits. When mixed with the breath brought in by the windpipe, several arteries flow into a fictional place at the base of the brain where vital spirits are changed into animal spirits before being distributed to the rest of the body through hollow tubes called nerves where blood is consumed by the tissues. Now, if any of you think that is correct, please stay away from medicine <laughs> or immediately take up medicine to correct your view of the world. And if your doctor has a certificate on his wall from Gallen and saying he was trained in the Gallenic School of Medicine, I would strongly recommend you change your physician almost immediately. Um, so, so what did William Harvey do? William Harvey thought, I'm not sure that this is right, that blood is created in the liver. And so he started to apply his rational mind to the material world through experimentation. And he looked at the human heart and he calculated how much fluid could be held in the human heart. That's a pretty good start. And then he listened to the human heart and how fast it beat. <laughs> and he calculated that over a 24-hour period. And he said, if the, liver is create, if the liver is creating blood and it has been consumed through the heart every, every day, it's all being used up, you would need, listen to this, 250 kgs of blood a day. I only weigh 70 kgs, ladies and gentlemen. I would need 250 kgs of blood to live. And he thought, this ain't right, brothers and sisters. <laughs> there is something going on here. And so what did he do? He started to cut up dead bodies, and he looked at veins, he looked at arteries, and guess what he discovered? What you know today, but you only know it because of the scientific revolution and a man who believed in God and thought that, hey, I could find this out by looking at a human body and discovering this. He discovered that our circulatory system recycles blood. It's a vast recycling system. You see how experimentation absolutely changed the way the world looked. What does this mean for us? Well, I think the idea that Christianity in particular, hinders science is what I would call, and this is a historical um, academic term, laughable. It really is laughable. Are you mean to tell me that Isaac Newton, Harvey, Galileo, Bacon, all had their intellect sapped, their inquiry destroyed, it's contrary to just basic human logic, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, if you read their writings, they say that their faith, many of them say that their faith was instrumental in their exploration of the natural world. It's laughable. Since we've seen that, in fact, without the Christian worldview, there would be no modern science. There would be no experimentation. There would be no idea of searching for laws that govern the universe. It is no surprise, then, that most of the great scientists that founded um, science were in fact theists, and in point of fact, were of one kind of theist, they were Christians. But do you know what? Even modern surveys show that there are plenty of scientists who are theists or believe in God, despite what Richard Dawkins may tell you. Do you know the very first survey of scientists occurred in 1914 by a Swiss psychologist, and he wanted to see if, if, these, if these scientists believed in God. Here's what he found in 1914, just as the First World War was about to start. He found that 42%, 42% of these people 
believed in a personal God. He found that 42% did not. Now, these are people in a field that's supposed to, if you have faith, it's going to sap their scientific endeavor. But it's pretty even. A historian replicated that survey in 1996 with a 1,000 scientists, and guess what he found? So over the greater part of the 20th century, with the rise of atheism, he found that there was only a five percentage point difference over an 80-year period. You know, the most recent research that's been done on scientific belief in God or a higher power comes from the Pew Research Institute in the United States of America. It was done in just 2006, and do you know what they discovered? They looked at the members of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Not a group of Christians, not the Baptists, not the Methodists, not the Pentecostals, not the Independents. They went and asked a group of scientists at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, do you believe in God or a higher power? And do you know what they discovered? Over half of them, over half of those people believed in God. You mean to tell me that their faith is not sapped, their scientific endeavor, that they could not do science, that somehow it would stop them? Well, the evidence indicates that it clearly has not, not just for the founders of modern science, but for current scientists today. And you know, there are scientists, and then there are scientists. We have the run-of-the-mill scientist, like I'm a run-of-the-mill historian, but then you have those people that win the award of all awards in the science realm. They are the creme de la creme. They are what we call, and every university wants one, it's a Nobel Prize winner. Do you know they did a survey of Nobel Prize winners for 100 years, running from 1901 to the year, let's have this up here, young man, to the year 2000, and of those Nobel Prize winners... They had 64% of them who self-ascribed themselves as associated with Christianity. Not somebody looking in at their life, but it's what they said of themselves and what they were associated with. Over 100 years of Nobel Prize winners, 64% of them self-identified with Christianity. Therefore, to argue that Christianity impedes scientific endeavor clearly demonstrates an awe-inspiring level of a lack of knowledge on this area. The beliefs that gave rise to modern science and the large numbers of very good scientists today who find their theistic beliefs system entirely compatible with their vocation. There are large numbers of them, ladies and gentlemen, out there. Well, now that we have demolished the myth, of course, we've only demolished it with a small audience. For a lie to succeed, you just have to say it many, many times and as loudly as possible, and it will eventually be believed, unless somebody challenges it. The book of Proverbs says, when a man hears something first, they believe it, until they hear another view. My final argument would be that one of the reasons for the success of these people and these false ideas is really the fact that we have not challenged it. And as Christians, we do deal a lot with faith and we deal a lot with emotion, but the mind realm we tend to push aside, ignoring what Jesus said in the second commandment, that we should not only love God with our soul, with our strength, but also with our mind. We should love God with our minds. We're also asked by God to give an account 
to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. I like what William Wilberforce had to say. He's probably Britain's greatest parliamentarian that's ever lived. He helped bring an end to slavery in Britain. Here's what he had to say. He said, Christianity has been successfully attacked and marginalized by these same groups because those who profess belief were unable to defend the faith from attack, even though, even though its attackers' arguments were deeply and profoundly flawed. Aren't they deeply and profoundly flawed? You know it. You know it. I hope, as I conclude here, I hope that over the next three weeks as we look at God's second book in cooperation with his first book, I hope over the next three weeks to show you that God's book of nature has plenty to say to us about God and that your and my faith, real faith, is not blind. It is not, ladies and gentlemen. Lord, I thank you for your word that we need not be ignorant and that through your creation we can see you, that you are powerful, intelligent, and mighty. Lord, I pray for a spirit of revelation that your words would sink and thoughts would sink deeply into our soul realm. We thank you that you are a mighty creator, that you love us, you sent your son to die for us, and that, Lord, we can live in such a glorious, magnificent, and powerful creation that points to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.